As you all know, spying is much, very much in the news these days. And so this is kind of appropriate to talk about. Um, in in um, 1965, the then director of the CIA, John McCone, came to us at Perkinama Corporation asking us to do a study on a brand new reconnaissance satellite. And uh, the existing one at the time was called Corona. And it had uh, been in progress for years, wasn't too successful. It had, it, it had pictures with a resolution of maximum six feet, but most of them were much less. They did not carry much film. Uh, so he wanted a camera with a resolution of two to three feet or better. That's all I can say about that. Um, and he wanted those cameras to be able to um, take photographs of the land mass of the whole Earth. So we, w we actually mapped the whole Earth with the ability to take up... Obviously, the, the main purpose was to uh, take pictures of Russia, China, uh, Cuba, Middle East countries, uh, key to the Cold War. And we did that. And we were able to take pictures as we scanned the Earth of missile bases, submarine bases, etc. I'll show you a few pictures. The pictures that I show you, I obtained from the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office, but they are uh, of diminished quality because I can't show you the good stuff. Um, okay, and when I say no smear... Smear means, uh, I'm sitting down because I can't stand for a long time. Um, if you took a picture of your grandchildren and they're running across the yard, the motion will create a blur. Or if you're taking a picture of a racehorse, unless you can track them exactly, the picture will be blurred. And in this case, let me move up. Um, I'm going ahead of myself a minute, but let me show you that this shows the, 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 the map of the Earth. This object here was a, an award that many of us at the company received from the uh, uh, President George Bush Sr., but he wasn't president at the time. He had been the director of the CIA. But we got this award, and the reason I'm showing you this, I want to show you, uh, it was a, it, oops, it, um, it had six sides, and he didn't make it in, they didn't make it into a real hexagon, because that would have given away maybe a hint. <laughs> so, the stars designate all of our 19 successful missions. Now, I'm going to talk about smear. Here's the, the globe. If my fist is the globe and it's rotating west to east, most satellites that are up in the uh, orbit now, we're launched from Cape Flor in Florida, Cape Kennedy, are, have an equatorial orbit. And, it, and since the Earth is tilted, it kind of oscillates around the equator. To do reconnaissance of the whole Earth, you have to do a polar orbit. Those are launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base in, in California. So as the Earth turns, 
you've got an orbit going around and it covers the whole Earth in X number of, of uh, orbits. And so what we had to do was to take photographs of a moving Earth from a moving vehicle from rotating cameras by film that was traveling at extremely high speeds both linearly and what made this project doable was was the development of a device called a twister. The twister allowed the film not only to travel linearly but in rotation with the with the image of the camera. And and they had to be synchronized to 0.01%, which is almost perfect. And it was. Okay, so um, so we had 19 missions successful. June 15, 1971 was the first launch. It lasted 52 days. And, uh, and then after the vehicle expended all its film, it was re-entered through the atmosphere, burned up and destroyed. There was, it was, this was not a manned mission, so we could not replenish the film. And it, during the Cold War, it provided the technical means for uh, a verif verification to see what the Russians were doing, and it allowed President Nixon to sign the SALT Treaty, SALT Strategic Arms Limitation Treaty. And then in 1980s, most of you may remember President Reagan saying, trust, but verify. Well, who did the verification? Uh, the, the hexagon did. By the way, about a year after June 15th, sometime in 1972, the program until then had been run by the CIA. Uh, and in that year, 72, they had other things to work on, like other reconnaissance satellites and other secret things. So they turned the whole program, whole program off to the Air Force. The Air Force was already involved because they were launch, running the launches from Vandenberg. So now they got the whole package of, of uh, improvements, technical verification, everything. And so we worked with the Air Force very successfully until the end of the program. And I have to say both the CIA staff and the Air Force staff were outstanding. The, 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 the colonels and generals and other officers of the, of the Air Force were fabulous to work with. And many people criticize the CIA these days. The CIA portion that we dealt with was not the operations or a political division. It was the direct, Directorate of Science and Technology. And they had excellent managers, outstanding engineers and, and, and scientists. And it was a pleasure to work with them. And for the whole program, there were no, no failures. This satellite was known at the time and after speaking to others recently, I believe it still is the most complicated satellite ever put up in orbit. Okay. So I showed you this. And the next slide was created by my friend John. 
And I want to introduce two people who are here who worked on the program. And John Aspinwall, take, stand up. He's a, he was in charge of the, of the electronic technicians who tested every single electronic board and, and servos. And, and he's a very accomplished photographer, so he recreated the, the, the award to show the vehicle, which is in, in this building. And I think it looks really great. And the other one is Joe Carpaz. Stand up, Joe. Karsmar. Excuse me. <laughs> Joe Karsmar. He, he was a... He was a mathematician and scientist who analyzed the optical data that resulted from the tests and the performance of the cameras. The cameras were called the optical bars. Um, and I was responsible for the design of those cameras, but that's besides. Okay, here's a picture of Chase Stadium. If, if, it, if this picture had a real resolution of two to three feet, you could see the seats. But it's, it's not that good, but you can get the idea. Okay, here's a picture, a little better picture of, the, of a submarine base in Russia. And I have a picture here of the Leningrad shipyard. At the end of the talk, I have some more pictures. I'm going to briefly go through. Uh, this is a schematic drawing. It's a little technical, but I'm going to show it to you. The vehicle, the hexagon vehicle, this is, was 60 feet long, approximately the length of a big truck. The whole vehicle with film and everything in it weighed 30,000 pounds. There were, two, there were two cameras. This right here, and I'll show you the camera in a second, is one camera, and the window, which you, you, if you look at the vehicle, it has a big glass window, which was really a lens, and, and it had power in it. And it looked at the earth. The vehicle traveled in that, that direction. So it was a, a camera that looked forward, an identical camera located here behind it looked aft, thus creating stereo photo, photo, photography. So each camera had its own supply reel of film. And each reel carried this kind of film. You recognize the Kodak? But it wasn't small like this. The film was very, very thin and it came thinner later. It and it was 6.6 .6 inches wide, and each reel had 30 miles of film. So that's 60 miles. And it could be black and white, or color, or intermixed, which it was. So the film um, had to be kept in a pressurized atmosphere because if film in outer space, which is a vacuum, uh, was exposed to the vacuum for too long, it would lose its moisture. It would curl up, crinkle, and it was just had, couldn't be used. So, if you see the model outside, there will be there are two spherical containers located right here under the just in back of the first optical bar. This is called the optical bar, and those containers were made out of extremely high strength steel, pressurized with 
3,300 pounds per square inch pressure nitrogen, dry nitrogen, clean. And so the whole supply container, which was uh, over close to eight feet in diameter, four feet wide, was pressurized with that gas. And then the, the film, as it transported through the system, it went through this film chute to a device called a looper, which is basically a film storage device so that on demand, the camera could grab film from that area immediately without having to turn anything on, take pictures, and then send it to the four re-entry vehicles. These are the same type of re-entry vehicles that astronauts used to come back in through the atmosphere and the heat shield would burn up. And then it, when it reached a certain altitude after the atmosphere, uh, in the atmosphere, a parachute would deploy and a C-130 Air Force plane had a trapeze on the bottom and would catch the parachute, bring it to Hawaii. It, this was over the Pacific. Bring it to Hawaii and there would be, uh, the film would be taken out of the re-entry vehicle, recreated and shipped back to the CIA in Washington and some of that film came back to us in Danbury, Connecticut. Okay, the the film went from this looper down to the focal plane area of the camera and then it went back to the exit side and on into the re-entry vehicles. The first re-entry vehicle was number one um, and so the film had to go through four, three, two, one. When number one was filled up, the film was then cinched on re-entry vehicle number two. There was a cutter, a guillotine cutter that cut the film and the commands uh, let the re-entry vehicle number one come down. And then eventually when number two filled up, it came down until all four were, were down. And there was no way to replenish the film, so after they were gone, the vehicle was destroyed. Um, the first mission, June 15, 1971, lasted 52 days. And, you know, a quarter of that is approximately the time when the films were re-entered. And then as the reliability and performance of this complicated vehicle improved and was reliable, uh, high, high, high reliability, um, they increased the mission times until the mission, the, la the longest mission was about 275 days, two-thirds of a year, roughly. And that we were able, to, we had hundreds and hundreds of moving parts here. Um, the film traveled over rollers. Um, we had bearings, lubrication, and, and um, okay, uh, here is... Okay, let me go back a second. My company, um, we, we designed the, the take-up reels that went into the RVs. The RVs were designed and built by McDonnell Douglas in St. Louis. We designed the take-up reels, which were sent to them, and they installed them in there. And so the midsection of the vehicle is from... Uh, from here to here, included the two cameras mounted to a frame. It's called a two-camera assembly. And we shipped those to Lockheed, not Lockheed Martin. This is old. 
Lockheed Martin w- was created later in, ca- in Sunnyvale, California, where eventually it was integrated into the vehicle. And the, so you see there the four reentry vehicles, the midsection where the cameras are, and the supply reels were, were right in this area, and the electronics were in this area. <clears throat> and then eventually it, they were most of the time I went there many many times to to do checks and fix some problems and do things most of the time when I was at Lockheed the vehicle was horizontal you see it here vertically and you can see the four RVs here's uh, here's uh, camera A and camera B and, the, and then the electronics and the the film supply was here. So I'll tell you one story. One time, there was I had to check on the preload of some bearings, and they were located um, up in that area. And so I, they were, this was surrounded by scaffolding. And I, I, I climbed up to the scaffold at the level that I had to go to, and they were diving boards attached to the scaffold where there were doors, there were openings in the vehicle out of cover that could be taken out so if necessary you could reach in and do whatever you had to do. And I had a helper, a technician, who was right next to me handing me tools. Well, I was, one of the tools was a C-clamp, just a clamp about this size made out of steel. And unfortunately, I didn't tether it. And guess what happened? It dropped to the bottom. And I said, oh my God. Luckily, the supply container was not there yet. So otherwise, it would have been a major disassembly, disassemble the whole bottom and get to that clamp. So, so he suggested, um, let's go fishing. So he got a big magnet, lacing cord, and we went fishing for it. We got it. And as he lifted it up, I tenderly brought it out. So, um, that's, that's one story. <clears throat> Another time, one of our colleagues was up on, this, on a similar scaffolding and he was doing something and all of a sudden, guess what happened? There was an earthquake in California and he, he was, oh my God, he raced down the bottom and of course, it was, you know, after 30 seconds it was over but Luckily, he had done his job. It was all finished because I don't think he would have gone back. Um, Let me go back a minute. So, when the CIA asked us to do this study back in 1965, um, um, we we then um, did the study, put together a report, and we went to the CIA and presented it at night in a in a safe house uh, in Washington and we presented it to the CIA. They liked it. They said, good, finish the study and then write us a, a proposal to the, for the job. Usually proposals take one or two weeks. This was so complex, it, they gave us six weeks to do it. So we wrote a proposal, submitted it in May of 1966. Soon thereafter, 
the CIA came back to us for fact-finding and to ask us a lot of questions. And they brought along with them, they had consultants. Uh, the TRW company was a consultant. The aerospace company was a consultant to them to critique. Um, and they were very critical, especially the TRW company, because they really wanted the job. And so they tried to make us look bad. But anyway, so and among the, the consultants was the, the president's scientific advisory committee, which was comprised of some outstanding, well-known scientists. And the leader, the chairman of it, was Edwin Land, famous for inventing the Polaroid Land camera. And he was great. He asked good questions. He loved trinkets and, to and um, gadgets. And so we, we brought him down to the lab and we showed him two gadgets that made this thing work. The twister, which allowed the film to travel linearly and in rotation. And the looper, which was a storage device, which was like a Disney ride where the film on a carriage went back and forth. And he fell in love with it. So then they went away on December, on October 10th, 1966. There were only between 15 and 20 of us who were there at the very beginning writing the proposal. And by the way, during those days, we did not have computers, word processors. We wrote on pencil and paper. We used, us engineers, we used slide rules. Yeah, anybody heard of a slide rule? Yes, I'm sure. We used slide rules. We had no microprocessors, no CAD, computer-aided design, no LEDs, no CCDs, nothing. We did have a NASTRAN program that helped us do some of the dynamics work. But anyway, so we were, the 15 or 20 of us were called into a conference room and we were working in a building that was closed up because everything was so secret. Um, anyway, we were called up and in comes the vice president of the corporation and the director of this program. And they, now, by the way, I'm wearing a jacket and tie. In those days, we all wore jacket and ties. Maybe if it got hot, we took that jacket off. But today, we're not dressed that way. I still do some consulting and everybody I work with is in shorts or <laughs> sports shorts. But anyway, so uh, they go up in front of the room and the general manager was like this and he pulls out a huge cigar and then I knew we won you know claps and all of that and then everybody goes back to their offices and about half of the people call their wives to say we just won a huge job couldn't tell them what naturally but one whose job and my job is secure for years the others of us including myself we called our stockbrokers which was not legal at the time. It still is not legal because we had inside information. So I was young. I didn't have a lot of money. So I ordered a dozen or two shares. I don't remember how much I, I, I invested. And the next day, the sec secretary came around. They found out about this. And she said, did you, did you get stocks? No. Did you get stocks? Yes. How many shares, et cetera, et cetera. So we figured we're going to lose it. You know, and that's it. But... Nothing ever happened. We were never reprimanded or taken the stock away because it was probably a very small value overall compared to the stock market. Now I wish I had 
invested a significant amount of money because in the next 12 years the stock split two for one seven times. So, anyway. Um, and the secu- Okay, then when we won the job, uh, the, we were working in Wilton, Connecticut. The program was, they, we bought land and an, had a new building, a new huge facility built in Danbury, Connecticut, including um, test labs, clean rooms, everything. And one of the uh, vacuum chambers, because everything had to be tested in a thermal vacuum chamber. We had one that was the largest in the world at the time. It may be not anymore, but a huge spherical chamber and one vertical uh, cylindrical chamber. Okay, so we eventually moved into that building, which had no windows except in the cafeteria, guards at every door. You had to exchange your badge to a special badge, ultra-high security, we had special phones that could not be tapped. This was like 1960s. Um, everything was, was ultra, ultra secret. We talked in code. For example, the optical bar, the camera, was called the OB. The supply unit was the SU. The take-up was the TU. The looper was the LO. And so we talked to each other in that, in that kind of code. And the one word that was absolutely taboo. Would anybody like to guess what that word is? What? No. Film. (laughs) Film implies a camera. So, film was absolutely taboo. So, the word we used for film was material. The material is going at this speed or whatever. Um, And and we each, well, not each, uh, I, I had two safes where all the classified documents were. Each safe weighed 1,000 pounds. And I had a lot of classified documents. And every time I undialed the, the combination, I had to sign in, then later put it back, sign out, close it. Every, at night, the guards inspected if there were any safes open at night. You got a violation, three violations, and you're in real trouble. Um, and um, <clears throat> so... Um, all right, let, let, let me let me let me go on. Um, okay, as soon as we, the fifteen of us, let's say, we won the job, what were we to do next? We wound up with over a thousand people working on this program in every facility: uh, uh, buyers, quality control, inspectors, testing, everything, engineers. And so we were all asked to do interviews. And most of us were engineers. I don't want to do an interview. I want to design, calculate, and design things. So, But we had to interview people. And we did. And one of the people that I interviewed was um, a mechanical engineer. And I thought I'd be a smart guy. And I thought up some complicated, how do you support a mirror with a flexure, something like that. And... And he answered the question. He knew more than I did. <laughs> and he wound up being the director of engineering. He was my boss after, after a while. Now, what did all these people do until they got the secret? Really, it's, a, it's, a, it's not secret. It's not top secret. It's something else I can't tell you. It's a very high level. So they had to be employed. And most clearances took four months to one year to get. Um, I was lucky I got it through very quickly, but 
So we created, there was an, a, a, some rooms in the building, very large rooms, not a quarter of the size of this, and we put desk after desk after desk in there, and we, we gave them uh, no work. They, they did crossword puzzles, or we gave them sanitized work from the program that would, didn't, would, wouldn't reveal anything. And so what did we call this room? The, the mushroom patch. Because we kept them in the dark and fed them a lot of crap. So, um, uh, okay, let me go on. How am I doing? Okay, all right. Um, here it is on the launch pad. The, 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 the launch vehicle was a Titan 3D for the first 16 launches, and then it became the Titan 34D. And, of course, the payload is, is up there. And it was launched from Vandenberg. All right. This is a picture of what you see if you go to the museum now or tomorrow. Uh, so, oops. Okay. Oh, geez, I'm, I'm going the wrong way. Okay. Um, this picture, I don't know, maybe, John, you took it. I don't remember, but... Okay. So, um, this is only the last two re-entry vehicles. I, we couldn't get to the other end, but uh, the film was in here. Here are the two spherical balls that held the pressurized gas. This is the camera on the other side, camera A, which faced forward, camera B faced aft. And um, this opening, there's one on the other side, a different kind of opening. There was a uh, stellar index camera that looked at the stars. And it had a computer map of the stars, very faint stars, so that it could aim the vehicle and we could know exactly where it was pointing to in Russia, wherever. Okay, so, um, all right, let me keep going. This is a drawing, an isometric drawing of the two cameras which were held in this very large aluminum frame. Can, can you see the dot? Because I can't. I, I, I think I have, let me try this. This is better, okay. Anyway. This was a rectangular aluminum frame made up of sheets of aluminum bolted uh, and epoxied together and they held each of the optical bars. Um, each optical bar was approximately six feet long, 30 inches in diameter. Each of them weighed approximately 600 pounds. This is this film storage device called the looper for this camera. This one was for this camera. Um, the focal plane area was was right here. And I, it's not easy to explain how this worked. I'll try to show you with my hands. But, um, and then this is the window to to the world to, to for the imagery to come through. So, oh, um, I talked about the film already. I, I was going to joke around and this is the film, the old Kodak 35 millimeter, but our film was much larger. Okay. Here is a photograph of what you have in the building here. And, and um, uh, this is the forward-looking optical bar. This is the window. It looks forward. This is the other one that looks aft, the two spherical pressure containers. 
this window was really a lens. It was 22 inches in diameter, one inch thick, it weighed 40 pounds, and it was made out of a certain type of glass. And uh, it had curvature to it, so it, it did do some corrections optically. And there are some electronic boxes mounted to the large frame. Um, okay. This is a drawing of the film supply container. And this was about seven and a half feet in diameter, uh, four feet wide. This was a, a cylinder. And here's one stack of film, 1,200 pounds. It was six feet in diameter, this wide. And as I said, the film weighed about 1,200 pounds each, each roll. The film exited through a complicated device. This was full of pressurized nitrogen. We had a, I'll call it a labyrinth here, to minimize the escape of gas. But the, uh, the, the, the film came out, and the same thing on the other side. It had the, the supply reels had motors, encoders, and other devices. Okay. Um, this is the camera. And basically, this is the, the, the corrector plate. The clear aperture, there was a plate here that defined the clear aperture of 20 inches. This was an F3 camera with a focal length of 60 inches. So the light came through from the earth, wherever, the, wherever we were pointing, and it bounced off this diagonal mirror here. This mirror was made out of few silica, was four inches thick, had a hole in it for the lenses. So the light bounced off here. Here's the primary mirror, 26 inches in diameter, and it bounced off the primary mirror and went through a series of lenses, four lenses, and, it, and here, right here is the focal plane. The focal plane was one inch behind the vertex of the last element. And in this area, this was evacuated. It was space. No, no, no. It was a vacuum. But the platen, the area of the focal plane had to be pressurized because the film couldn't lose moisture. And so, um, and, and then this rotated uh, during photography constantly, when there was no photography, it stopped. There was a motor that was commutated by an encoder, optical encoder, which we invented. And it rotated at various speeds. The speed of the film, the rotational speed of the, of the camera, was all based upon a ratio of the velocity of the vehicle above the earth, like 20,000 miles per hour, whatever it was, divided by the altitude above the first surface of the earth, V over H. That determined the velocities. And here's the earth. Orbits are elliptical mostly. So apogee is the furthest away. Perigee is closest. So the closest to earth we were about 90 miles and obviously we got the best resolution there. And, and as it went away from the earth, the velocity decreased, the height um, increased, so it went slower. At, for the best pictures, when it was closest to the earth, no clouds, perfect conditions, we got excellent resolution. The film traveled at a speed of 200 inches per second. So that's like 
not quite, you know, across the stage, maybe two-thirds of the stage, that film went by like that. It was incredible. And, it, and so the film had to be synchronized with the rotation of the, of the camera. Let me see what do I have next. Okay, here's the schematic of the film path. For the, 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 the cameras are not shown here. But the, this is camera A. So this is the film supply for the A camera. It went over cylinders, rollers, many, many rollers. The rollers were seven inches wide, the size of what, my finger. They were hollow. They were made out of beryllium to make it very lightweight and reduce the torque power requirements. So then the film <coughs> went through the looper, which was an input side, an output side, and a carriage that traveled back and forth. When it went to the left, it drew film in, and then during photography, it reversed. Uh, after photography, it reversed, and the film went out and into the chutes that went through the, through the re-entry vehicle buckets. This is the focal plane. The twister was right in here. And the cameras were constantly going around. And this had to match the speed of the camera. And the credit has to go to the electronic engineers who designed the electronics and the servo systems to perfectly synchronize the film speed to the image speed. And, and I'll just try to explain this. We, okay, I'm the camera. I'm looking straight down. That's called Nader. Okay, Nader. So let's say a missile base was over there so we could scan the, the missile base. If we wanted to get a whole area, a large area of film, we could scan plus or minus 10, 15, 30 degrees, up to 60 degrees. So we could scan 60 degrees to minus 60 degrees. That's 120 degrees. If we did that above Dayton, you could see the whole Earth um, 10 miles wide, Four, almost 370 miles long between here and New York or something close to that. And for every degree of scan, that was one inch of film. So if you had 120 inches of film and you took meaningful for the photography, you'd get a piece of film 10 feet long. You know, 10 feet times 12 inches is 120. So the, all the photo interpreters in Washington and elsewhere, in our place too, when we get the film back, they all got new light tables where you, the, the film, film A was here, film B was here, and they were overlapped. And looking through a stereoscope, you could see photos in stereo. It was amazing. Um, okay, so now, the way that I'll try to explain how the twister worked. Um, remember I showed you the, the two cameras, the two camera assembly with the two optical bars. They always rotated this way. So that if you dropped wet clothes in the, in the ringer, they would squeeze and dry off. Okay. So they rotated this way, in opposite directions. Every major assembly rotated in opposite directions, such as the two reentry, the two, two reels of film, the two optical bars, the, the supply reels. And why did it go in opposite direction? To compensate for momentum. Because if they both went in the same direction, the vehicle would want to go, you know, action-reaction, go in the other direction. So everything rotated opposite each other. Um, <clears throat> okay, so, so I'm talking right now, right here. The film is over 
is riding on all these rollers, hundreds of them. And there are two focal plane rollers up and down. There are like two of these together. And the film is, is, is riding over it. I'd say 200 or less inches per second. The rollers are so well aligned that the, 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 it was flat to within uh, 40 millionths of an inch. And we had devices to keep the film from wandering and twisting and all of that. But so here's a let's say here's the camera going around, okay? And here's 120 degrees, and the corrector plate, the, the piece of glass, is going around, and it's taking pictures from here to here. In the focal plane area, the twister did did the following. Here's the camera, and at 120 degrees, here is the focal plane. It's really called an air, they were air bars. We had rollers, slightly larger, with punctured holes in it, through which the nitrogen gas fed air, so that at the focal plane, the film was riding up and down on a one roller, and it was riding on a, on, a, on a layer of air, very thin layer of air. So here's the camera, and, and, it, it, and then the, the, the focal plane rollers pick it up, now they're taking photography. This, come, this keeps going around. At this point, the film is stopped, reversed, goes into the exit size of that looper with the storage device, and then, and so it's going backwards, and, then, and this is going back here, and they meet up again. Pictures, recycle. Pictures, recycle. And that's how the pictures were taken. And so... As the film went by this wrap at 200 second, the, this roller tracked the same angle as the image, and therefore it could it could rotate as well as go linearly, and and that's that was the key to, to the to the to the program, and uh, um, <clears throat> it worked beautifully. Okay. The two camera, the, the midsection I showed you before with the two cameras and the uh, other stuff, the, it was shipped from Danbury on a truck to Bradley Field in Connecticut, flown to, to um, Lockheed, and the only plane that could accept it was a C5A, the biggest plane in the world at that time. So this is the C5A, and this, was, it, this, vehicle, this container was temperature, humidity controlled, the whole building had to be temperature immediately controlled to, to save the film. Okay. Uh, this is a uh, plane with a trapeze on the bottom that would catch the parachute. And so here it snags the parachute. The vehicle, oops, I'm sorry. The vehicle is, uh, is down here. Parachute, snags it, brings it to Hawaii. Okay. Do anybody know what this is? It's the Trieste, which was under the bathysphere could go down 30,000 feet into the ocean. Well, the only failure we had was in an early mission. One of the parachutes did not deploy. I don't know why. I'm not going to blame the Air Force at the Air Force Museum. So, <laughs> but I, I don't know why it didn't deploy. But it sunk. It hit the water at 2,000 G's. Shock sunk into 16,400 feet of water. Okay, disaster, lost. Well, the CIA 
decided they wanted to capture it back because they thought that somewhere in this monstrous, you know, thousands of layers of film, somewhere in the middle and away from the edges, there might be some valuable photography. That was one reason. And the other reason, there were always Russian trawlers in the area. And they, they did not want the, <clears throat> the Russians to capture this vehicle. Just like, you remember the Glomar Explorer that Howard Hughes built? That recovered a Russian submarine. Well, we, don't, we didn't want to lose this thing. So they hired us at Perkinama to design a large claw, large enough and able to pick up the reentry vehicle and its contents. And they hired the Navy to retrieve it. And involved was the, the, the Trieste, which was the underwater recovery vehicle, and the White Sands and the, I forgot what the other ship, there was a tow ship, and the White Sands was the leading ship. And <clears throat> so we designed this claw, and it took months. And it, this was based where I, my wife and I live now in San Diego, and they ran tests for months. They had located it. Um, and so eventually this went down. There were two pilots in the in this thing that went down. It did capture it, but it had been so damaged that the pieces fell apart. There was film. The film unraveled, and we brought it up. The CIA did not want anybody to know what was being brought up. A film from a spy satellite? No. So the people running this were told when the bathysphere with the claw underneath reached 100 feet below the surface of the water, they should cover it with a black tarpaulin so nobody would see it. And so they, they raised it. It turns out the, they got no data out of it. That's the bottom line. They were very happy. They, they made the effort to do it. Uh, in few, it was futile, but they were happy about the whole effort. And the, all the sailors were really annoyed, angry, we worked all these months and now we don't even know what we were trying to retrieve. So, um, <clears throat> by the way, in the <clears throat> in our building, when we put everything together, the the optics, the all the rollers, all the bearings, everything, it was all done under extremely clean room conditions. Uh, the air was filtered so that were micron size vehicles uh, particles left. We all had to wear bunny suits, hats, boots. We went through an interlocked air chamber where all the dust was taken off of us and it was, it was just, uh, um, it was general practice. We also had a war room in our building, which was a large conference room, screened in so nobody could tap in anyway. And we had maps of the world uh, and so at any time we knew where the hexagon was looking at. We had a telemeter data coming to us on the walls and if there was a problem, we'd look at the data and try to analyze what was wrong and we were able to fix it. Um, I, I don't think I have time to tell one, one story about that, but let's see. Okay, so here's the, the re-entry vehicle at the bottom of the sea, uh, ocean, 16,400 feet down. And that, that's that. Unfortunately, the last mission, do you people remember the Challenger exploding in January of 2008? Uh, 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 um, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, 1986. 
Well, three months later, our last mission blew up 800 feet above the pad at Vandenberg. And this is a sad ending. I cried when this happened. It was so sad for me because I'd been working on this for so long. And it exploded. Um, Okay. Here's some pictures that we took. This is a Kiev-class Russian aircraft carrier. This is a missile base in Russia. Obviously, the detail is not sufficient for you to interpret it, but the PIs did. They work on that. And here's a radar station. And um, I had one, I had a couple of stories if I have time. I'll take questions. But um, one of our senior managers, Arnie Wallace, John, you know him. Um, he was purposely the devil's advocate. He used to come over to see our designs, look over our shoulders. Why did you do it that way? Prove it. Very critical, but it served its purpose. We came up with a good product. Well, one time I'm, I'm in the drafting room, and in those days, we had big, real drafting boards. So I'm working, I've got several of my designers working and doing things, and I'm, I'm looking, and we talk about it, and here's Arnie in back of me. I kind of sense him there. And he used to wear a, a tie clip, which was a little pistol. And all of a sudden, he pulled it, Bang! Scared the hell out of us. Hey, what are you guys doing? You know what you're doing. <laughs> he scared us, you know, just for the fun of it. Um, and um, one other time, one of our technicians, um, there was a problem with a lead screw with, which had 128 balls to advance it and retract it. And, and the, the guy went up to, into the vehicle. It was in, in our place. And he, he got out the... And there was a problem. So the inspector measured by the diameter of every single one of the 128 balls. And one ball he found was one thousandth of an inch undersized. So they called the inspector over and he hands him the ball. Hey, this, is, this ball is, uh, is, is no good. We've got to replace it. Okay, replace it. He threw the ball back into the, <laughs> into the mix and they had to do it all over again. Yeah, we did some stupid things, too. Anyway, um, anything you want to know, please ask me some questions. That's, that covers most everything.